Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. As a result of the many debates that I'm a part of on TV comparing players from different decades, if not different eras, and because clips from those debates wind up on social media, I hear from a lot of basketball fans that want to make part of the debate the idea that today's players, and thereby today's game, are much more advanced than players and the game in previous eras. The players today are more athletic, they're more skilled, they're just all around better. That's how the argument goes. And because of that, the game is so much harder to play, and therefore, Stars in today's game have a much harder time being stars or legendary than stars in previous eras who were, as the popular line goes, playing against plumbers and carpenters. My former FS1 colleague, Marcellus Wiley, liked to use that line a lot. I'm not sure why. As a former professional athlete who played a decade or so ago, I don't know that he really believes that he played against plumbers and carpenters or that the guy's preceding him like his good friend and mentor Bruce Smith played against plumbers and carpenters. And that's really what we're talking about here. The proof of the entire league's inferiority along those lines is often provided by pointing out one or two guys who weren't particularly skilled who had careers in the league. Not literally plumbers or carpenters, but guys who didn't have the shooting prowess that even the average player has today. And I like Marcellus, but it's a lazy line and not the least bit true. And I suspect he knows better. It just works really well in an argument on TV. But in any case, anyone is under the illusion that there's even a shred of truth behind it. Nobody has had a second job who played in the NBA in the last 60 years. Nobody has made it to the league deciding that they were going to be an economist or a teacher or anything else 
and then suddenly found themselves in the NBA. The closest thing is Duncan Robinson, who thought he was going to have to become a, a guy working in the media and had an opportunity and wound up in the league. Vast, vast exception rather than the rule. And the guys who did work some 60 years ago were selling insurance or real estate in the off-season. Guys weren't preparing for manual labor jobs and then happened to get drafted to play professional basketball. By and large, they all dedicated themselves coming up to play basketball as they knew basketball at the time. I'm not even sure guys spend more time on their games today than guys did back in the day. Consider the business interests that players have today. Every player in the league I know has some kind of side hustle because they're available. The top players are damn near running corporations. Now, they do spend more time and money on their bodies than players in previous eras, but that's a little bit different. It's different than playing the game. And that's in part that spending that money, time and money on their bodies, is because there are more ways to do that and more evidence that doing so can improve your performance and extend your career. Teams didn't even employ massage therapists or conditioning coaches 40 years ago. They might have a weight training coach if they were progressive, but no one knew 40 years ago you could extend your career with maintenance and load management and weight training and they didn't have quite as much disposable income in their paychecks. Now, imagine any of my listeners who are attached to the idea, perhaps from watching today's game and then watching a few YouTube clips or looking at stats from today and yesteryear, that today's game is much more advanced and therefore so are today's stars, are hoping to dismiss what I'm saying as an argument simply posed by an older guy wanting to defend the players he grew up with because, well, I don't know why I would do that because it's not my argument. It's, it's theirs or yours. But I promise you that ain't it. There are aspects of the game in past decades that I'm not going to defend. The game toward the, 90s, the mid-90s, early 2000s was an ugly game. Far, far too physical. I'm not going to try to tell you that the 1994 finals was a good one or that the Knicks and Rockets weren't frighteningly challenged offensive teams, the two teams that were in that final. I do find it interesting, as an aside, that Kenny Smith of TNT played in those finals for the Rockets, and yet I can't remember a time that he's ever referenced that experience. If a guy played in a finals and got a ring from it and yet hopes to forget it ever happened or acts like it never happened, you know it was some ugly basketball. One note on those of you who may think you have a grasp on what the game was like in the 80s and 90s or at any time prior to you being old enough to watch and comprehend what was going on on an NBA court. I highly doubt you were watching every minute of every game of every playoff series from back then. You know, the way you do today, hopefully. And without doing that, it's impossible to understand who did what in those series, just like it would be today. Starting in 1993, I covered in person multiple teams in every round of the playoffs, in person. I went to the practices, 
the shoot-arounds. I talked to the players and coaches and generally had good seats at the games, or at least seats that allowed me to see everything on the court and on the benches. For many years, I was a sideline reporter, which gave me access to walking over to the team bench of my choice and listening in on their timeouts, along with sitting courtside. I say all this not as a humble brag or a flat-out brag, but simply as a way of explaining why I might have strong opinions when players and teams that I saw compete in person 10, 20, or 30 years ago are compared to players and teams I've watched compete in person today. It's because I don't need YouTube clips and comparable statistics to weigh who was capable of what, to know which numbers were meaningful and which ones were not. And yes, I hate to say it, but I'm going to. It's why I have the opinion, the strong opinion that I have about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. Claiming the players like Larry Bird, I'm going to leave it at that, by the way, that was great restraint on my part. I, I want you to know that. Uh, claiming that players like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan weren't the shooters that the best shooters in the game today are, and I'm going to avoid using Steph just because he's such an outlier. Uh, to suggest that Larry Bird and Michael Jordan weren't the shooters that we've got today because they don't didn't have the same shooting range is like suggesting a math whiz in the 70s wasn't as smart as a whiz kid today because the latter wasn't doing blockchain development or software development. It's a false equivalence. The 70s kid didn't have any reason to know how to develop blockchain or understand software because those things either weren't popular or they didn't exist. Both Bird and Jordan perfected the shots they needed to perfect, more so than anybody else on the planet. They both also had physical advantages that Steph, for example, doesn't have advantages more in line with Kevin Durant because of their size and their, and their athleticism, which is what makes Steph special because despite his height disadvantage, he's become such an adept shooter. But that said, we're not grading on a curve here. It's ultimately what you're capable of doing. But the biggest missing element in today's game is understanding the formula to winning. So many players simply run up and down and try to outscore the opponent. They do it in very acrobatic, entertaining ways. Ways that I'm not sure that the average player back in the day was capable of. The great ones, the great ones, that level, I don't know that that changes a whole lot in their ability. Where the game has come up is that the average player is more skilled and, I, and, and more athletic than the average player 40, 50 years ago. And when I say that players simply run up and down and try to outscore the opponent, I imagine some of my listeners are thinking, well, yeah, sure, isn't that the object of the game? And the answer is no. It's not to simply outscore the opponent. It's to end the game with more points than the other opponent. And that may sound like semantics or just word play, but the distinction is I don't have to put up as many points as possible to win a game. I'm not even sure every player in today's NBA is actually concerned first and foremost with the final score more than what their final box score looks like. 
Because there are a multitude of ways to win a game. And a player who makes winning the game his priority and understands how to achieve all those different ways or to, to follow all those different ways has a huge advantage regardless of how tall he is or fast or what shooting range or vertical he might have. Now, there's a certain baseline of size, speed, ability that you have to have to be able to play in the NBA. But you don't have to be at the very top to be a winning player, especially in today's game. There are multiple ways to be a winning player. And it may not require scoring a lot, or it just may require scoring in a certain way, or it may require dictating how the opponent scores or who among the opposing players is doing the scoring and when. And if all that sounds complicated, it's because the game of basketball is a lot more complex and has many more layers than most people give it credit for because they're just used to seeing the up and down, or watching it from a surface level. Now, I understand that all this that I'm talking about is a lot more boring to consider than Trey Young's ability to launch from 30 feet or Zion Williamson spinning to the rim and dunking. The entertainment aspect of the game, the ability to do things that can be clipped and put on social media has an outsized value today, simply because those things can be advertised and consumed in a way that we never had before. My problem with it is that it's equated with excellence rather than entertainment. That's wrong. It should be equated with showmanship. There's a difference, and we're getting a load of examples right now before our very eyes. Proof that all that improved individual skill and advanced athleticism does not equate to being great or better or winning. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We've got a simple question for all of you out there who believe that the talent in the league is at such a higher level that it's so much more challenging to be a star in today's NBA. Why then are guys who aren't particularly athletic and weren't blue chip coming into the league kicking everybody's ass right now when the competition is winnowed down to the best of the best, when the stakes are highest and the rewards are greatest? When reputations are made and legendary status is earned, when teams can focus in on what players do best, take that away and ask, now what can you do? How is it that the last pick of the 2011 draft, now almost 34 years old, is in the running for playoffs MVP if there was one? How is it that a six foot one second round pick who has dunked twice in 31 playoff games would be right there with him? running for that MVP? How is it that another second round pick from overseas whose athleticism is mocked on the regular led his team to the best record in the Western Conference and is well on his way to the Western Conference Finals for the second time in four years? 
How is it that a team with seven undrafted players knocked off the winningest team in the league this season in the first round? How is it that that same team has a 34-year-old power forward who couldn't clear an open laptop and yet is still able to pull down a dozen rebounds? I'll tell you why. Because for all that heightened athleticism and all those heightened individual skills, the number of players who actually understand how to win a five-on-five game of do-or-die basketball is lower than it's ever been. It's why Tyrese Halliburton, the Pacers point guard whose game I actually admire and is one of the smarter players in the league today, I would argue, would look at the 27-foot three-pointer that Jordan Poole took and missed and ask why it wasn't a good shot. Halliburton said he would take that shot. And as former NBA player Channing Frye rightly pointed out, that's why Halliburton was doing a podcast instead of actually competing in the postseason. A point guard. A point guard not just with an understanding of how to run an offense, but how to create the best and highest percentage opportunities to score depending on the time and score, would not have simply looked at Jordan's shot and thought, yeah, not bad. (laughs) I'd take that shot. Because in a prism left to its own, it's not a bad shot. It's not a bad shot for Jordan Poole. Catch and shoot, feet set, not bad. Under all the circumstances, time, score, etc. But a point guard who understands the game at a deeper level would have seen that Draymond Green, who passed the ball to Poole and Poole, were practically standing next to each other when Steph Curry passed the ball out of the double team to Draymond. He also would have noted that they were rather slow getting up the court. They weren't ahead of the ball, they were behind it, which allowed the Lakers to create a wall of players in front of Steph. He also might have noted that if Poole had positioned himself correctly before Draymond got the ball, which is space the floor, that he would have been able to catch the ball while already facing the basket and easily, if he so chose, to take a dribble in and tow the three-point line rather than having to catch it on his right side as he moved to his left and then square up and shoot. These are subtle details, but when shooting from distance, they're as important as when you're shooting a rifle and can brace your support elbow on something solid or you're trying to hold the rifle still while standing up. This is something that I just recently experienced, so that's why it's top of mind. It's a big difference in terms of your aim. If he had been properly spaced and he was a better passer and ball handler, like, say, Halliburton is, he would have recognized that with 10 seconds, he had time to attack the rim, allow Curry to possibly relocate, and then he'd have the option of kicking to Clay in the one corner or Steph in the other. That Halliburton, with his abilities, wasn't thinking that way is actually kind of surprising. And obviously, corner threes are a much higher percentage option than 27 feet from above the arc, catching the ball and twisting your body to square up. This is one example of the awareness that players who understand the game have, an awareness that is in incredibly short supply. It's, it just makes the game easier. It, makes, it allows players to be far more efficient. And when they know that possession by possession, it adds up and can make a huge difference. Why do you think LeBron at age 38 can still have the impact that he does? It's not because he's a great shooter. He's streaky. 
It's not because he has the same athleticism that he had when he was coming up. It's not close. It's not because he can just go by guys at will or outside of in transition or that he's Akeem Olajuwon in the post. It's because he knows what needs to be done when. And that knowledge is so rare, he is still taking it to guys 10 and 15 years younger. It's why I admire him as much or more now than I ever have. Ever since he clinched the all-time scoring record, he's returned to actually playing to win games, which at this point means letting others score, playing off of them for buckets, or taking over and getting them when things bog down, but being very intentional about when he's scoring. He's also putting more energy into being a playmaker and defender. Now, I don't know how good the Lakers would have been the last two years. But they had scorers. Malik Monk was a Laker. They just weren't given a chance to do what they did best because LeBron had an agenda. All I know is he's allowing Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell to play in a way that is far different than the last few years. And it's not because the talent wasn't there. We've seen that talent go elsewhere and flourish. So don't go trying to sell anybody on that. This, by the way, wasn't the case in previous eras. Guys might not have been as individually talented, but they also didn't make the boneheaded decisions that guys today make on a regular basis. Decisions that are papered over statistically with rule interpretations and the three-point shooting that makes offense so much easier to come by. Offense that then makes a player look like he's impacting winning a lot more than he actually is. The number of players that you can put out there that can impact the game without scoring are fewer than ever. You can you always have to be a threat. In today's game, you have to have five guys out there who are capable of scoring. But how many guys, if they're not scoring, can impact the game? And this was also back... Back in the day, players were allowed to defend, and they put a lot of energy, time and energy, into doing that. Steph is another one who, at 35, shouldn't be dominating the way that he is. And yet, he is. He doesn't have the same burst. Defensively, he's working as hard as I've ever seen him. He's accepting the challenge. Again, another thing I admire about him. I get the sense that he takes pride in it. And why is he doing that? Because he knows the Warriors need it. Clay isn't nearly the same defender. Jordan is almost laughably bad at it. Against the Kings, he wasn't just launching threes, Steph that is. He was highly aware of time and score and knew for the, for the Warriors to control the tempo, they needed to minimize long rebounds, which would lead to quick breaks for the Kings. I'm seeing the same thing in the first half of the game two against the Lakers. He's made adjustments. He's finding out the, how to get into those mid-ranges and then make a decision in terms of, am I shooting or am I finding somebody else going to the rim? Draymond Green's making the same adjustment. He's attacking the rim. He's trying to score. He's, see, he's finding his openings. He's not taking bad shots. He's taking the shots that are there that he may have passed up in game one. Against the Kings, especially in game seven, Steph made a very important tactical adjustment. 
He was repeatedly attacking the rim or getting inside, sucking the Kings into the defense so that even if there was a miss, they weren't already in the sprint lanes headed the other way. The Kings' De'Aaron Fox, while certainly talented and on his way to being one of the league's best point guards, had no such awareness as far as how he was attacking. And I don't, I don't blame him. It's the, his first time in the playoffs. He'll learn. He'll get better. But the ability to adjust, to tactically change your game and have the skills to do so, that's something that I'm just going to throw some... uh, The Houston Rockets' young guns that everybody's all excited about. They don't have the first clue about any of that at this point and probably won't until they get to the playoffs, if and when. I don't know that what I've talked about here will change anyone's mind Uh, particularly those who are dead set on believing that LeBron James is more skilled than Michael Jordan or that Steph Curry is a better point guard than Magic Johnson. I'm just giving you some of my background and perspective so you understand why I find both of those assertions absurd, even if you don't agree. And I do hope that all I've talked about, at the very least, gets you to consider the game in a different way as you watch Jalen Brunson and Jimmy Butler, and Nikola Jokic, and Malcolm Brogdon, along with Steph and LeBron, perform in these playoffs. Because I just gave you four guys prior to Steph and LeBron who are not particularly athletic, are not particularly, they don't have any particular advantages when it comes to size or speed. They just know how to play the game. And as a result, they are winning at this time of year. They might not be flying over anybody John Morant style, but where's John Morant right now? It's just the way the game works at this time of year. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Deep into the playoffs now, game every day, and I am going to try to expedite getting these uh, episodes out more frequently. So I don't know where I'm going to go in the next one, but I hope to have it out in the next couple of days, and it will be playoff-centric. That's about as much as I can promise. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.